the effectiveness of opioids for the management of chronic pain, you know, there's actually not a lot of evidence um, that they work well over the long term. And some evidence to suggest that actually, you know, even things like plain anti-inflammatories, over-the-counter anti-inflammatories over the long term are safer and work better than opioids for the management of chronic pain. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist, and this is season number seven. Today, I'm delighted to be sharing a conversation with Dr. Abhimanyu Sud, a physician, medical educator, and health services researcher based in Toronto, Ontario. Dr. Sud is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, the research chair at the Primary Care and Population Health Systems at Humber River Hospital, and the chief scientific officer for the Chronic Pain Centre of Excellence for Canadian Veterans. His clinical research, education, and advocacy work focuses on the complex intersections between chronic pain, mental illness, and opioid use. In today's conversation, we'll be looking at this through the lens of elite and professional sports and how we deal with pain. It's a reality in elite sport, particularly contact sports, but is there a better way to deal with pain than the chronic use, daily use oftentimes of NSAIDs or opioids to control and deal with pain? It's a vicious cycle a lot of athletes, practitioners, and doctors struggle with, and Dr. Sud will enlighten us with some of the latest research around pain. Before we get started, the Football Performance Nutrition online course is opening up a new cohort this September 2023. The FBN course covers it all, energy systems and training demands, football characteristics and body composition, macronutrients, supplementation and hydration in football, nutritional periodization as well as recovery nutrition, concussion nutrition, mental health and mindset as well. You'll learn from leading practitioners in the NFL and NCAA and get a front row seat to the monthly mentoring sessions so you can make a bigger impact with your athletes. The early bird special is $100 off the cost of the course. And as a special bonus, you'll receive all 14 talks from the recent FPN Summit 2.0 absolutely free. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses and book your spot. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses and book your spot to connect with the best and level up your skill set. All right, let's do this. My conversation with Dr. Abhimanyu Sud. If you could give us a quick whirlwind tour of your background to introduce yourself to everyone. Sure. Uh, Thanks, Mark. Uh, So I'm a uh, physician by training um, and I have a focused practice in chronic pain medicine and my work uh, both clinically, research-wise, education-wise, actually as well, as focused on uh, the overlap of chronic pain, mental illness, and uh, by necessity also opioid use. So um, I'm based in in Toronto. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, um, and lead a number of education programs, uh, national education programs around chronic pain management. And, uh, and opioid use. And I have a longstanding interest also around meditation. So I've been meditating myself uh, for about uh, 20 odd years. Uh, I've been teaching meditation for probably about 15 years or so um, to, you know, in the community and medical settings and a variety of settings. 
and uh, increasingly some of my research now focuses on um, uh, employing meditation as an intervention, as a health intervention, particularly for populations that are affected by chronic pain, uh, as well as important comorbidities, because nobody, fe nobody feels good when they're in pain. Uh, we know that uh, upwards of, depending on the setting, but upwards of 40 to 50% of people who live with chronic pain also have depression, may also have uh, anxiety disorders, high, high rate of post-traumatic stress disorder in the context of chronic pain uh, from a variety of different um, sort of sources. And so, you know, when we think about treating chronic pain um, and finding appropriate uh, interventions to help people living with chronic pain, we really have to think about uh, what else people are coming to uh, an intervention with. It's usually not just pain on mm -hmm. its own. And that's been actually a major deficiency of a lot of our research is, you know, we tend to, the way we do biomedical and clinical research tends to kind of siphon off people into particular groups. So, okay, are you somebody who has chronic pain? Uh, and we try and kind of find sort of uh, quote unquote, clean populations, people who have chronic pain and nothing else so that we can know specifically what is the effect of X intervention for people with chronic pain, but that's not reflective of the, uh, of what chronic pain looks like in the real world. And so trying to investigate interventions that are really going to work well in the real world and for real people is, uh, been, been a focus for me. Yeah, it's, it's tremendous. It's you know, such an exciting area and needed area because we look at the general population. I mean, chronic pain is, is widespread, like you mentioned, whether it's physical ailments, um, how it dovetails into, you know, chronic health conditions. And then of course in sport, you know, especially contact sports leads to a lot of injuries and a lot of chronic pain. And of course this segues into kind of the treatments that we typically use for chronic pain. Can you, you know, walk people through what are the common treatments for pain if someone's coming in with chronic pain? What do we go to first when it comes to things like medications? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think when, before we start talking for you know, talking from a sports perspective, I think we have to rewind a little bit and talk about the development of chronic pain from acute pain, right? Because it, mm -hmm. all, all pain really, it starts as acute pain after, you know, our definition of chronic pain uh, is really pain that persists for more than, depending on the definition we use, pain that persists for more than three months or more than six months. But really, I think from a sort of sports injury perspective is really pain that persists beyond what we would expect for the normal healing time of, of an injury, right? And uh, there are a lot of different mechanisms through which that happen, some of which are physical um, and some of which are psychological and actually both go together, right? We, we know that pain is mediated by the nervous system. Uh, mediated by the brain and mediated by our minds. Uh, it's not to say that pain is entirely mental. That's uh, something that people often mistake when we talk about psychological aspects of pain. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that uh, the pain is not real or that the injury is not real, but how we process it and therefore how we experience it is very much mediated by, modulated by our, our mental state. Um, and so <clears throat> there's, there's a variety of, you know, so many different injuries, whether it's contact sports or non-contact sports, obviously, right. There's a variety of, uh, different kinds of injuries, uh, joint related injuries, but also a, a whole series of other myofascial, uh, kinds of injuries that are, are, are relevant from a sports perspective. 
And when we think about appropriate treatment, you know, our, uh, especially post-injury, and I think, you know, for the most part, appropriately, uh, we, we think physically first, right? What, what, what are, how, what can we do to heal or repair the physical injury? So, uh, that can range obviously from a good active rehabilitative therapy under the guidance of, uh, a physiotherapist, osteopath, chiropractor, whoever it may be. Um, obviously in some cases, surgery is indicated, mm -hmm. uh, but really surgery, um, and I think most surgeons will tell you this is, is, is you don't do surgery for the purpose, for the sake of pain. Uh, you, you do surgery for the sake of repairing tissues, uh, but pain, dealing with pain is going to be a whole separate issue. Um, medications are important. Um, and there's a whole variety of medications that are used to treat both acute and chronic pain. Um, and they range from anti-inflammatories, you know, the uh, vitamin eyes <laughs> uh, to, uh, and there's a whole variety of anti-inflammatories and a lot of misunderstanding about what anti-inflammatories do and how they work uh, to, if it's nerve related pain, depending on the severity of the injury or the chronicity of the injury, sort of longer, even when there's not been damage to the nervous system. So you can have injuries where there's, where there's, been, there's damage to the nervous system, but even with chronic changes that are mostly muscular or musculoskeletal in nature, you can get, there's a phenomenon of neuroplasticity where how our nervous system responds to the injury starts to change. And there are certain kinds of medications that are uh, a little bit better suited to treating those kinds of um, uh, when the pain is related to nerve changes. So uh, these are often classes of medications that come that have been used to treat uh, seizures because they work on the nervous system. Uh, antidepressants, there are certain kinds of antidepressants that have been studied for um, their effects on pain, specifically pain as it relates to changes in the nervous system that can be effective. Uh, and again, sometimes this, uh, this is misunderstood both by healthcare professionals and by people living with pain that, you know, when we're using these other kinds of medications for, for example, antidepressants, it's not because we think pain is due to the depression necessarily, or that the pain is in the head, but that actually these medications work on our nervous system in a particular way to modulate how our nervous system transmits pain and therefore can, can, can reduce pain. Uh, and then of course we have uh, medications such as opioid medications, which are used quite widely uh, to treat both acute and chronic pain. Um, you know, their, their efficacy for acute pain is, uh, you know, can be quite clear, but there are a lot of people for whom uh, opioids don't work very well. Um, the effectiveness of opioids for the management of chronic pain, you know, th there's actually not a lot of evidence um, that they work well over the long term. Um, and some evidence to suggest that actually, you know, even things like plain anti-inflammatories, over-the-counter anti-inflammatories over the long term are safer and work better than opioids for the management of chronic pain. That's not to say that there's not a role for opioids for the management of chronic pain, particularly severe chronic pain, when other interventions don't work. Um, but we have to be careful because there's a lot of people for whom they don't work and for a lot of people for which uh, there can be significant side effects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating. The, you know, pain is information, as you know, and of course, acutely, like you said, for performance staff, understanding that pain, being able to work through it, to be able to get um, that player, that individual back to, to full health, to be able to play and train and perform. 
But you mentioned something there as well, obviously, that our perception of pain. And I'm thinking of two directions here. Of In our general clients, we often have clients who are very sensitive to pain. And that begins to sometimes feel like the perception of pain is incredibly heightened and that they should almost not be feeling as much pain as they are. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, we see athletes that can really tolerate a lot of pain to the point mm-hmm. where it, we're not getting clean information as a yeah. performance staff because they're so able to sort of mask it or hide it. And then this will dovetail into a later question around the things that they might use alcohol, et cetera, to kind of cope on that side. But can you right. speak a little bit to that sort of hypersensitive individual or that person that's you know really good at just tolerating pain and how that can skew our ability to, to understand or even to how we, how we can support that? Yeah, that, that's, that's such a, that's such a great insight, Mark, because we don't have a painometer. <laughs> we don't, uh, by, by necessity, pain is subjective and, um, there's nothing that's going to change that. You know, you, you hear people talk about, uh, using neuroimaging or other modalities to, uh, kind of ob- objectify pain. And I think that really misunderstands what the nature of, of pain is. Uh, it is information and information uh, has to be um, processed and uh, depends on the, the, the makeup of the processing system that's going to determine how that pain is uh, even, you know, recognized in the first place. Like those people that you identify who have a high pain tolerance or, you know, threshold may, may not even recognize uh, pain that can be then, you know, useful for, 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 training, for training purposes. And that's where uh, the connection between the mind and the body is extraordinarily important. It, it's not just our nervous, you know, the, our physical nervous system that determines how we perceive pain. There are certainly, uh, you know, there's genetic important genetic variation um, that manifests in the nervous system that determines, in some ways, uh, hypersensitivity or undersensitivity to pain. That's very important. But also, like with anything, you know, uh, nature and nurture are both important. So how we are raised, the environment in which we're raised, what we're taught about pain, what we learn about pain, um, how we use pain as we grow up uh, uh, is going to determine what our experience of pain and how we end up communicating that with others. You know, so uh, like you're talking about, whether it's with a a healthcare professional or a trainer, um, we need to learn. and teach others how we can use pain. And that's a process over time, just like, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know, learn, learning how to do a, a dribble handoff or, uh, yeah. you know, uh, how, to, how to lay out to catch a ball or whatever it may be like, you know, these are skills to learn. Uh, and, uh, but the thing is that our, our, our nervous system and our minds are amenable to training. So we can learn, even if you may be sort of on different extremes of, uh, of those pain perception thresholds, you can learn how to, and relearn how to use and process and experience that information that you're getting uh, from your body and from your environment. Yeah. The environment seems to play a powerful role when we look at, you know, ice hockey, football, and that we're sort of taught to just ignore the pain. So you talk about the signal is information that's coming. And then the athlete begins to over years, it seemingly just begins to be able to kind of shut that out. Another example might be someone like Tiger Woods with a, just a generational thing of being able to shut out that pain. And of course, at the time, it can serve them well to get through something. But when you, you look at you know, the progression of someone like Tiger Woods' career, just the damage that that's done then ultimately versus some other people in his generation. Um, 
But when we look at yeah, team sports, football, ice hockey, we're taught to ignore this pain. Players get good at ignoring the pain. How can and get, and get rewarded for being and, and get rewarded in the short term, both for yeah. playing and also the accolades like the, Hey, you're tough. Great job. You got back out there. Mm-hmm. You know, in your opinion, what is a way to start this conversation around like, Hey, this pain is information or being able to even help staff to, you know, almost protect the player. Because if we are after the athletes best performance and best health over a longer term, we, we do want to be supporting that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a tough bind to be in, right? Because uh, especially professional sports, it's so, it's so competitive and whatever advantage we can have, if, if you have that advantage mm-hmm. of uh, having a higher pain threshold, uh, you may be willing to and want to or need to leverage that in order to sort of make your, make your way in and be, and, and be successful. Um, and so, but we're also in an age, uh, as, as you've identified, Mark, that we know that there are potentially uh, long-term, uh, not just long-term, but to potentially debilitating uh, consequences of, of following that path. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's sort of two fronts here, right? One is systemically, what are we rewarding as a sort of system of, uh, around professional or even amateur sport? Um, and, you know, that there's a lot of conversations happening around that, but then at least individually, um, being able to communicate what uh, risk reward is, uh, you know, if, if we are going to uh, ignore the signals that we're getting from our bodies, uh, being able to clearly communicate what the potential consequences are going to be for that uh, over, over the long term. Uh, and, you know, understanding that most athletes in these positions are very young and they have a long life ahead of them. Um, and, you know, hopefully uh, a long rewarding, uh, healthful life ahead of them, uh, uh, being able to kind of, uh, make that balance more clear of, you know, what are the, some of the potential consequences of, uh, of making that choice or, you know, at least making it, making it the possibility that it's a choice uh, to understand what the consequences are of, uh, of, of potentially ignoring some of this information that we're getting, uh, from our bodies and externally. And Shifting gears here a little bit, Doc, to an example of what we see with players, again, football players, hockey players, all of a sudden it's four, six, eight ibuprofens every day and months go by and this is how they're coping with pain. Can you first just talk about some of the potential side effects of of that level of usage of some of those NSAIDs? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the the even short short term, but uh, definitely long-term effects of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen are very well documented. Um, so, you know, probably the most uh, commonly known one is uh, can, can drive a gastritis uh, or uh, basically thinning of the lining of the stomach ultimately can lead to things like gastrointestinal bleeds, um, especially if it's, you know, mixed with other uh, exacerbants of, uh, of the stomach lining, such as alcohol. Um, kind of have effects on our kidney function, uh, which is important for, you know, obviously for our overall health, but can drive things like high blood pressure or hypertension. Um, and we know that anti-inflammatories also can have specific cardiac or, or, or heart effects as well. Uh, so th- those are really the main ones that we get most concerned about. And these can happen even, you know, with younger people, uh, less of a concern of, uh, uh of an acute, um, 
cardiac issue, but over, you know, over a period of time, uh, especially people, you know, and, and it's not possible often to know in advance who is more likely to be affected by these, but with chronic use, uh, you know, certainly the most concerning, I think for an athlete would be, uh, the, the cardiac as well as gastrointestinal effects of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yeah. And what I often hear from teams and performance staff, particularly at the college level is more of that, yeah, that behavior and that pattern that sets in. So kind of what you're alluding to there of all of a sudden now for not just taking it from 18 to 22, but it becomes a pattern and we're still doing the same things that all the way till we're 30 or 35. And this can become a real concern. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, just also going back to your, your, your previous points, Mark, about, uh, you know, pain as information. If we're dulling that information, um, you may be at higher risk for developing further injuries, right? If you, if you, Absolutely. if you're not identifying that, okay, you know, my shoulder, well, my shoulder only bothers me if I don't take the ibuprofen, if I take the ibuprofen, yeah. it's fine. Um, you know, m- maybe a, a rotator cuff tear, uh, could have been avoided, uh, that otherwise wouldn't have been because you're not sensitive enough to that, the information you're getting from your body. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder, if you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the Performance Nutrition Podcast drops and receive evidence-based insights every month, then join the Athlete Performance Nutrition community by signing up to our newsletter. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com and sign up in the big black box. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Shifting gears again to talk about this connection between the brain and pain and where meditation fits in as a, as a tool, as a strategy to be able to support chronic pain and start to impact how intense it might feel or the amount of suffering that we feel. Can you talk a little bit about the, how you know, breath work and meditation is actually impacting the brain? Yeah, there's, there's, there's so many ways. Uh, I, I would say, uh, you know, let, let's, Let's start with this paradigm of, of, well, well, of of pain as information, right? So um, if you're, uh, if you're getting, okay, you're trying to watch your, think about a sort of old old school TV, you're trying to get it from the antenna, antenna is not sitting in the right spot. It's fuzzy, it's staticky. You kind of know what's going on in the TV show, but you don't have a really good sense, right? So what meditation does is it clears the signals, right? It allows us to be able to perceive more clearly what's happening both around us and within us, because meditation, what it does is it calms the mind. Uh, It makes the mind like a crystal clear lake. So you can detect any little ripple that might come come up on the lake, right? If, if it's like a rough sea where, you know, so many different things, so many different currents are happening all at the same time, it's very difficult to appreciate or detect what's happening. But at the same time, it's not total placidity, right? There's so much, if you think about a calm lake, there's so much potential in there, right? Potential to harness energy, uh, perception, observation, and then ultimately how that gets expressed in our performance. Uh, and so meditation and breath work, they, they really calm the mind and calm the body to be able to be ready in the moment, uh, rather than being pulled in te- 10 different directions uh, at any given moment, 
we can give our 100% in that given moment. And athletes, many athletes have a, a great ability to do that, uh, but not necessarily on demand. Uh, when we meditate regularly, we, we build the capacity to be able to perform in the appropriate way in the moment. Uh, and that you know, also relates to, you know, being able to identify uh, obviously getting information about uh, injuries or pain, but then also when we suffer uh, an injury, uh, it gives us a better ability to be able to deal with the pain. And there's, you know, we have a, a ton of great research, really interesting research showing how uh, both meditation and breath work actually change the brain. We see, for example, you, you actually grow uh, new cortex uh, with extended practice of meditation. The cortex is sort of the, you know, uh, outer layer of the brain that, you know, modulates our conscious perception uh, of uh, different sensations, but also uh, modulates how we manage pain. And uh, it's a time dependent effect. So basically, you know, the, the more you meditate, the more brain you actually grow, which is, which is fascinating. One of the few things Sorry. that you can do to, to actually grow more, uh, grow more brain tissue um, and change your train, change how your, um, your mind, your brain and your mind are operating. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tremendous, obviously on, on multiple fronts, I mean, dealing with the chronic pain. Um, you mentioned, I like that analogy of, of the lake and the calmness. And of course, when we have all sorts of different emotions and things coming up, thoughts, how that could become, you know, the, the waves that can become pretty turbulent on top. And oftentimes what we see is that some athletes can be quite good, even within training, within performance, but then almost in the rest of their life, there's almost a level of anxiety when they're off the court or off the field. Right. And they, they almost don't have the, they can't rely on the same skill set they're using that when they're in the moment, when they're actually just in, we'll call it real life. Um, and so it's, there seems to be a really nice, uh, you know, wins on multiple fronts, let's say, to be able to support pain, but also to be able to, to provide them the skills to, like you mentioned there, actually being able to see what's impacting that, that stillness versus if everything's so chaotic, it's tough to tell really, you know, what's happening. Exactly. Yeah. And so when we think of meditation, then what, you know, where does someone start? How, you know, how much would someone have to do to start to obtain benefit? How skilled would they have to become to really amplify that benefit? I mean, it's, it's so easy to meditate these days. There's so many different avenues to get exposed to and learn meditation. And I think it's important to think about meditation like we think about any skill. Uh, you want to learn from the best. You want to learn from people who are experienced and who've walked the path before and can show you the ways and the tricks because it's um, there are very simple, easy ways to meditate. And that should be the sign of a good meditation practice is that it should be easy. It should be simple. If it's complicated, if it requires effort, meditation is the practice. If you want to think about it very simply is the practice of effortlessness. Okay. The rule of the body is effort. And the rule of the mind is effortlessness. So if we want to get that mastery over our mind, uh, we need to learn the skill. It sounds paradoxical, but it's, it's there. It can happen. We need to learn the skill of effortlessness. And when you think about it, 
you know, when you think about the mind and the body, when we, if we have a, even if we have a diseased or painful or injured body, a strong mind can overcome that. But even with a strong body, we cannot overcome a weak mind. And so we need to learn that art of effortlessness. And it's best, I mean, if you want to learn um, any athletic skill, yes, there are some of those unique, sui generis individuals who just, (laughs) you know, uh, but they're so rare, right? That can come up with, you know, novelties and how they use their body. Uh, But even those people, they've learned, they've been exposed to others. And uh, I, th- I think it's important for us to recognize this, that, you know, meditation has been uh, around. Uh, it's been known for millennia. We don't know how far back people have been practicing meditation and there are traditions of meditation. And I think it's very important uh, for people who want to, to learn meditation to identify um, somebody that they can work with personally who can show them the ropes and guide them through because, uh, you know, the mind is an amazing thing. Uh, it is extraordinarily simple, but also extraordinarily complex. And it can be, it's very easy to get lost in there too. Uh, and so having somebody who can sort of show you the way um, uh, is important. And then once you, once you learn, uh, then the practice just, ha- you know, it, it really happens by itself. And it's not really um, something that you just do for, 20 minutes a day with your eyes closed, like meditation can happen. Uh, that calm, cool state of mind is something that, uh, can be there with you no matter what circumstance you're in. And ultimately I think that's where a meditation practice takes you is that you can be in that moment, uh, and you can have that stillness with you, uh, no matter where you are, uh, or who you're with. And doc, is there a place that you start you know, a lot of athletes, and I get this from a lot of performance staffs are trying to integrate this is that when individuals try to become still, or let's call it meditate, there's almost a level of anxiety that starts up. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's either that or the common phrase, you say, oh, it's, you know, I can't sit around or I, they, they want to, they're having lots of thoughts, I suppose, and they, they almost can't not act on some of them. Um, how do we start that process to be able to get them to you know, do you have any strategies or, or ways of describing it to them that can help them? Because as you mentioned, I mean, the goal here is to be effortless. And initially for some individuals, it's amazing how doing nothing feels like a tremendous amount of effort. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll share two thoughts here. Um, one is that, you know, if you're walking into a, a house um, full of dust and you start cleaning, you're going to create and spread a lot of dust around. That's, but that's just sort of the first, you got to go through that in order to get to the, to the clean house. Okay. Um, so, you know, don't be worried by uh, too, too much concern by the racing thoughts and because you're just becoming aware of something that maybe you haven't attended to for a long time. So that's, that, that's the first piece of advice. The second is um, understanding in more detail, the relationship between our body and our mind. So our body is the growth and our being. So uh, which are, which is not constituted by either only our body or our mind. So our body 
is the grossest part of our being, right? We can feel it. We can touch it. We can smell it. We can move it, right? You can't do any of that with your, with your mind. You can't reach it. You can't touch it, right? Um, but in between is our breath. More subtle than, uh, than our body, but more gross than our mind. So it's like this in, in between mediating force that we, you can almost reach it, right? You can feel your breath, but you can't quite hold on to it like we can hold on to our body. But you, by using our breath, we can harmonize that relationship between our body and our mind. It's like the string on a kite, right? Our mind is like a kite. It can float this way and float that way. But using our breath, we can get some control and some direction over our mind. And so uh, a really good starting point for people who have not engaged in meditation before is using the breath. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in the practice of yoga, where a lot of meditation practices come from, this is called pranayama, which means like controlling the breath. Mm -hmm. And by controlling the breath in different ways, we can have different kinds of effects on our mind. And you notice this, right? Like with different states of mind, we breathe differently, mm -hmm. right? So when we're angry, how do we breathe? Right? <laughs> like, a, like a bull, right? Like big breaths out of or our- pump handle breathing. Yes, exactly. Without even realizing it. And then all of a sudden, yeah. oh, geez, what's going on? Exactly. Yeah. Or you've had a long day. You come home, sit on the couch. What's the first thing you do? <sighs> <sighs> right? A big sigh of relief. And so pranayama from yoga is really turning that relationship around, right? So using the breath to modulate how our mind is operating. And so I think the breath is really a great starting point uh, for people who want to get that entree into meditative practices. And is there a certain strategy or tool that you might use for breath work of just a certain count in and out or the belly breathing, or does it really matter? People can kind of select whatever one that might resonate as a starting point. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole universe of, uh, of pranayama breath practices. Mm -hmm. um, some easy ones, uh, you know, what you can notice, uh, you can notice an effect right away is alternate nostril breathing. Okay. Where we breathe in through one nostril, breathe out through the other, use your fingers, right? So you can occlude your right, your left nostril, breathe in through your right, then breathe out through the left, breathe in through the left, breathe out through the right. So you use your ring finger um, and your thumb to occlude the alternate nostrils and uh, close your eyes when you do it. And right away, your nervous system calms down. So actually this, uh, this uh, breathing practice has been studied and shows has been shown to actually modulate our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. And that's like the most basic, like, you know, it's actually people do it. And, you know, some people, they will go into a meditative state of mind right away. And it's, this is like one of the most basic uh, breathing practices you can do. There's a whole sort of world uh, world beyond that. Mm -hmm. I often find as well, it ends up clearing if you're congested in a strange way, it ends up clearing out, you know, alternate nostril breathing tends to be able to support that as well. I don't know if that's something that you've ever noticed, but. Uh, well, you know, what you start to notice actually is at different times of day 
and with different kinds of activity, different nostrils are dominant, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I, I don't feel like doing my work right now. Or, you know, I, I, I just feel like chilling out right now. You'll notice in those moments that a different nostril is dominant. And actually it's the flow of energy. That's it's, it's the flow of energy that's dictating what you feel like doing in that moment. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in those moments, you're kind of um, uh, you're dependent on sort of the, the, the flow of energy in your body to allow you to do certain things in those moments. And what pranayama yoga allows you to do is to have more say in that moment uh, what you can and can't do or what you're better, better suited or better not suited to be able to do. And so you can get more and more subtlety around how to actually um, manipulate your breath and therefore your energy to be able to be better ready to do what you need to, because you can't always be like, okay, well, I feel like chilling out right now. I'm just going to chill out. or I don't feel like doing this. Or you're walking. Yeah. It's not always possible. Right. So, uh, and you actually have the ability and you'll actually notice there's a relationship to a space like sometimes you walk into a space and you feel great and in those moments you'll notice actually that your uh your dominant nostril may change um and so there's there's interaction between the space the energy and the space that we're in and the energy that that that's going through our body wow yeah that's impressive uh if anybody has any questions feel free to use the chat now and I'll, i'll pass them along to doc and well, I want to appreciate the time you're, you're providing us here, Doc. This is tremendous. When we think about the evolution of research in this area and even some of your work, you know, what, what, what do the next three or five years hold for us? Yeah, so, you know, we actually, a couple of things I'll, I'll have to say about that. One is um, it, it's not for a lack of evidence of effectiveness that we are not, that we are not using meditation and breathing practices as much as we can. We actually have, particularly in the area of pain, quite good evidence that mind-body interventions like meditation, like breathing practices are quite effective. Now, the effect size are small, but when we start to think about how many different aspects of our life these kinds of interventions impact, then the effects start to you start to realize how big the effects actually are, right? And so, excuse me, we need to find uh, more and more ways to make these interventions accessible to the people who need them. And that, that's kind of the sort of research I do, which is all along implementation science, mm-hmm. is, you know, what are the possible integration points of mind-body interventions together with, because they're not, they're not a replacement for other interventions for pain or anxiety or depression or whatever it may be, but they are useful adjuncts. And so how do we get them to work together with everything else that we're doing or for improving performance as the case may be, right? Or for preventing injury, right? How how do we find and who are the right people to be able to deliver these interventions to the people who need them? You know, my my personal um, experience and sort of what we're researching is you know, rather than sort of repurposing professionals who already have expertise, we already have a bunch of people out there in the community who have expertise in mind-body interventions, uh, who we can bring on as part of uh, teams to optimize performance or avoid injury or to manage uh, manage injury and ma- manage um, 
health conditions? How can we incorporate them as part of our teams in order to really optimize uh, athletic performance or other kinds of performance? 100%. Yeah, it's all about having all those different tools at our disposal and being able to use those tools. And, um, you know, it seems to be a tool that obviously impacts a lot of different areas. And in today's age of, um, you know, where we're constantly difficult to focus and difficult to keep ourselves um, uh, on one topic, it's it's it definitely seems to be something that's becoming more and more important. So really appreciate you uh, carving out some time today, Doc, and uh, we'll definitely have to circle back soon. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bob's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bob's Performance Podcasts.